0: Welcome to this week's Eccentric Minute, brought to you by Eccentric. This week's Eccentric Minute is one of my favorite exercises to do with the K pulley, and that is the pull through. Guys, once you've figured out about how far you need to walk out with the K pulley, grab whatever attachment you're using for the pulley, walk yourself out there, and really push your hips back at the K pulley. From there, when you hit that stretch, really punch your hips forward, keep your chest up, and try to extend your knees and your hips all the way through. And this is where one of the major benefits of using a flywheel kicks in as it pulls you into a deeper stretch as you push your hips back in into your hamstrings and your hip extensors so that you really open it up and stretch everything out in the back. This is an exercise that I'm sure your athletes are going to love to hate but reap awesome rewards from. I really hope you enjoyed this week's Eccentric Minute. Make sure you check them out at eccentric.com to find out everything you need about the K-Box and the K-Pulley. Being a strength and conditioning professional requires constant pursuit of better knowledge, better methods, and better means. But what if there was a place where strength and conditioning coaches could learn from some of the most innovative practitioners in the world such as Jeff Moyer, Lachlan Wilmont, William Wayland, James The Thinker Smith, and Keir Flat? Well, You could find multiple lectures from each of these top-level coaches and a few lectures and examples from yours truly as well all in the Strength Coach Network. The Strength Coach Network is going to bring you well over a 100 different lectures from some of the top practitioners in the world to be your one-stop shop for your continuing education and professional development. So hop on over to strengthcoachnetwork.com slash today and get your 48-hour trial for only a dollar. That's strengthcoachnetwork.com slash C-V-A-S-P-S to get your 48-hour trial for only a dollar. I look forward to seeing you in the Strength Coach Network. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Today, guys, we are going to discuss fatigue in the sport of basketball with Oklahoma's Assistant Director of Basketball Strength and Performance Scientist, Aaron Heishman. After a real quick intro of how Aaron got down to Norman, guys, we are going to dive right into what he's looking at with his dissertation and how his time in Charlottesville Really drove the bus into this educational uh, venue that he's running down right now. You know, and initially what he was looking at was was how training loads affected jump height, and this has got him to run down the force plate rabbit hole and look at acute changes in performance readiness and fatigue from day to day based on outputs at practice. Uh, and, you know, and he's going to look at those alongside endocrine responses, the perceptual responses, and he's going to really get into all of this along with looking at some alternatives to jumping as other test outputs that we can use for our athletes in order to make sure that we're able to look at not just central, but peripheral fatigue. This is really an awesome talk, guys. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Let's get right to it. Aaron, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Listen, I'm fired up for this one. It's It's been a while, man. You know, It's it's not as easy to get to to the 804 from from Norman, Oklahoma, as it was from Charlottesville. But uh, let's get everybody caught up with what Aaron's been up to, and you know where you're at and how you got down there.
1: So I'm uh, I'm this is my first year as the assistant director of basketball performance. Um, here at university of oklahoma i'm also have a role as a sports scientist for the university um this is actually my fourth year on campus here though i came to norman in 2016 um to pursue my phd in exercise physiology Um, i had a unique situation set up uh starting kind of at my master's i worked um, at the university of virginia i got my master's in exercise physiology i worked under arguably the best string coach in the country mike curtis um specifically for basketball Um, so when i was there uh, he put me um learn training a lot and also that there's a, a large use of science and using science to improve performance. Um, so that really caught my interest and I decided I want to get my PhD, um, through my master's project there. From there, I got contacted, um, with a, a mentor here uh, on campus in Norman. Um, and then also, uh, um, Coach Curtis knew Bryce Dobb, who is our director of performance here, and working with those two, I kind of got a situation where I could work in the applied setting with my PhD, so I could continue to grow as a coach, um, a performance practitioner, but then also do valuable research in the applied setting, which I think there's um, at times a paucity of, because a lot of good practitioners don't have the time to do the research. So um, I volunteered here for three years as I helped with training, I was incorporated in Kind of all aspects of of the performance model, but then also um, helped initiate um, a lot of the sports science interests that we have have rolling. Um, and then the the job popped up um, open um, this past summer, and um, I was thankful enough and lucky to get it. So um, yeah, that's how that's how I got here.
0: Yeah, dude, and you know I think it's kind of awesome how it's really working full circle from your time in Charlottesville to now down in, in, in Norman where we're looking at like at that time in 2016 is really when, when things started going, when it came to the fatigue monitoring and load monitoring and things that you guys were building. And, you know, obviously Mike has continued to, to move forward with that and is I guess you could say he's doing okay. Um, and, <laughs> you know, yeah but now coming into a new setting and this is now driving really what you're doing down there in Norman.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, my research, uh, has paralleled really well from, um, what we did in Charlottesville, um, with, um, using catapult to monitor external loads and, um, having indices of internal training loads and then also the counter movement jump response. Um, my first research project there, uh, through my master's, it was one of the first uh, papers to kind of link in basketball athletes that we, ha- if we have an increase in external training load, there's a subsequent change in counter movement jump performance. So we had a decrease in jump height in the, the subsequent days, um, which seems fairly obvious. But the, the important thing is um, as practitioners and using science to guide training is you have to document those things. You have to have a divine structured uh, analysis to say, yes, we do have this link. So they're doing more and there's, there's the cost of that. Um, that's kind of laid the foundation for when I came here to Norman. Um, uh, a lot of my research has been based around uh, usul- utilizing force plate technology and uh, the counter movement jump specifically to detect acute neuromuscular changes so we can see um, uh, modifications in preparedness and also just readiness from a day-to-day standpoint. Um, so I've done a few projects on that, and uh, but the research is paralleled very, very nicely. Um, and part of that's because my, my mentor here, um, at the University of Oklahoma. His name's Mike Bimben um, in, in the neuromuscular laboratory. And um, he really has given me a lot of autonomy to research the things that I want to do. Bryce has given me a lot of autonomy to say, hey, I think this is important. We should um, use this. I think we can gain a competitive advantage with this knowledge um, and then um, putting the resources and time into those, um, those projects. So um, it's been really, really beneficial to have that smooth transition.
0: So now when we're looking at these force plate numbers that you're looking at, um, what metrics are you looking at Why did you pick them and why are they important?
1: Yes. Yeah, so that's a, it's a really detailed question, and I think the answer is right now no one really knows what we should be looking at, to, and what's the most sensitive and specific measurement of fatigue, and then is it really sensitive enough um, and specific enough to detect fatigue? Um, and that's really what's led me to my dissertation project, and um, that's why my answer is very vague because I haven't completed that analysis yet. But um, for my dissertation, we're looking at uh, when an athlete, this is with the men's and women's basketball teams, when an athlete goes through a high external training load. Uh, exposure in practice uh, based off of player load per minute. Um, What are the subsequent uh, recovery patterns of that? So what do they look like from pre-practice to following that external training load, then at 24 hours 48 and 72 hours um, with a clean recovery time course. And what we were able to do is set up and have no other practices in that 72 hours of of time. So we can say any changes that we see in these force plate parameters are coming from uh, the fatigue from practice. And then comparing that with the two extremes, hopefully uh, having a large enough effect, we can see that there's a difference in which specific parameters um, we should be looking at uh, from the force plate. Uh, With that, we'll also parallel um, uh, endocrine responses over that same time course and perceptual responses because we know fatigue has uh, a physical side and then also a perceptual side. So uh, paralleling like our our, uh, physical deficits is also with our... um, our perceptual deficits to really determine um when fatigue occurs in that time course what's the time course of recovery and then also hopefully between the two uh training intensities we can illuminate the uh the key metrics that's that's saying hey look there, there's more load and this guy's out a deficit from that uh i, I have one paper it just got accepted um the journal of sports science and sports medicine um, and it was looking at over the course of the preseason it was kind of a preliminary analysis characterizing our loads during the training, uh, the preseason uh, training phase. Uh, so we would kind of know what a high and low external training load was when we exposed them to that for the for the dissertation study. But uh, really, we saw with um, increases in external training load, we had modifications in flight time to contraction time in RSI mod. Um, moderate effect sizes with those, and um, I think that that parallels with a lot, what a lot of the other research would say is that you're going to have a change in that movement strategy. Uh, but jump height didn't change; the guys were still able to achieve jump height on average. It's just that movement uh, movement signature became um, different to achieve that same gross output.
0: That's interesting because you know people talk about that quite regularly. That you know just jump height isn't the cast pajamas when it comes to understanding what's really going on.
1: For sure, I, I think
0: that's a multi-tiered
1: uh, issue. One is our guys are really good jumpers, and they're really good compensators at um, achieving gross tasks. If you tell them to do something, they'll be able to achieve that uh, um, that task, and they can compensate to achieve that task. We think, um, and we see that in the weight room, right? When you ask them to do stuff, it may not be the best pattern, but they can achieve the task. Uh, also, when you're using the force plate technology, um, with the way, depending on how you compute the jump height. Uh, it may not be the best indice with small, subtle changes of, uh, increase in your dorsiflexion or small, subtle, um, hip flexion and deflection that you can't observe. So, like the naked eye, um, can really affect that, uh, affect that displacement value. So, um, we actually have a paper on that too, whether we should be using the flight time to contraction time or, um, the, um, impulse method. And we use flight time to contraction time, which seems like a, um, force plates are fairly expensive to, to use that uh, method with but um, we just improve the reliability with it um through some of our analysis we can see we have improved reliability using the flight time method uh, with our players so um, that's what we use
0: so then what do you think would be the pros and cons of doing it the other way the, um, the impulse
1: method. to uh, so what we saw was that the uh, there's, there's literature that says that that's, uh, that would be like the more accurate measure. Um, so if you're if you're looking for the most valid parameter and you can get more assessments and lumi, uh, uh, dissipate some of that uh, variability in the parameter, if you're looking for the exact measurement, then you might be able to uh, improve that with the impulse method. But using the flight time method, you decrease your variability. So if you're measuring within subject changes, then with less variability, hopefully you can see smallest workload change a bit better.
0: I love that because that's really what you're looking for here, right? Is you're not looking for Aaron versus the team. You're looking at Aaron versus Aaron because at the end of the day, that's Aaron versus Aaron is what's going to affect the team the most, not Aaron versus the team.
1: Absolutely. I think that's a key point as well. Um, Taking a research mindset versus a practitioner mindset. So many times in research, we do, uh, one repeated measures of NOVA's analysis of variance where we're looking at those average differences. But as a coach, a lot of times we need to see smallest worthwhile changes because we're taking that, it's in a one with every athlete. So how is this athlete responding? Uh, Because that's gonna play into the overall uh, team outcomes. While with research, a lot of times we're trying to understand the mechanisms and physiology behind um, certain outcomes. So we have to do that on average um, so we can really get the real effect um, of an event so
0: then what are so you those seeing? results can be applied right right so then what exactly are you seeing what are some things that aaron is looking at right now and is either like okay or he's like oh
1: yeah i, th- I think uh, one interesting thing um I think the counter mid-jump is a, is a good assessment. I think there will be different assessments that we'll also use. Some people are using, um, like, the isometric mid Um, There's some challenges with that, specifically if you don't have a, a large Olympic lifting background. There's a large technical proficiency to that. Um, I think those isometric tests, if we can find other ways to assess that, may be uh, equally as important and provide unique information. Um, also, uh, also, the velocity of contraction. If you look at... Um, Um, a lot of the fatigue literature. First off, fatigue is very task specific. So depending on what the practice looks like could affect the type of fatigue manifesting. Um, So really figuring out a way to illuminate what the movement signature in practice is going to be key and how um, detailed we can get in that to um, maybe useful. And then also um, a lot of the research done in like a lot of isometrics or unijoint contractions um, show deficits in um, velocity of contraction, and uh, n- not necessarily gross output of contraction. Uh, so I think that is another key avenue. Um, this the sec- that, w- that was the first part of my dissertation that I described. The second portion of my dissertation, um, I wanted to get a little bit more invasive um, and describe the physiological mechanisms that we're seeing after practice um, and seeing where this fatigue is manifesting if they are getting fatigue after, after practice. So um, this is what I'm really interested in is uh, a guy how does a guy look pre-post-practice if we can quantitate the external load in how the muscle is contracting? Um, like, what are what are the modifications in those contractile properties? And then are there modifications in central versus peripheral fatigue? Uh, so where's the main and primary site um, that fatigue will manifest? Because um, to send a signal to the musculature, it's a it's a long pathway that a, a lot of um, different areas could go wrong with. Um, and obviously fatigue is gonna be uh, multifaceted And there's going to be multiple sites that are are affected. But what is the primary uh, primary site uh, um, of the deficit? So um, what I've had the guys do is and and men and women are um, from pre to post practice. And then at 24 hours, uh, we do a a technique called the Twitch interpolation. So we'll do a maximal MVC for three seconds um, and then we'll do at at 2.5 seconds, they'll get a stimulation, a peripheral stimulation of the muscle, muscular stimulation um, of the quadriceps while they're doing an isometric knee extension uh, and of a predetermined current. That's their maximal um, current needed to excite um, all of the musculature. And so they're kicking, they get the stem at 2.5 seconds, they relax, and then they get um, a stimu- uh, two subsequent stimulations. So we can kind of see differences in contractile qualities. So with that first portion, um, as the athlete's kicking, they produce a maximal force. Whatever additive force that we have, we would say that that is force that the brain couldn't send a large enough signal to the muscle to contract. So then um, that would be more of a central deficit uh, in in, um, in fatigue. If the there's no ad- additive forces um, with uh, exogenous stimulation, um, then we know that the mechanism is more peripheral because uh, the muscle, is just being worked to max capacities there. Uh, so, starting to delineate how the, the muscle is contracting or how the, the, the body's fatiguing is it more centrally or peripherally driven? It's tough because fatigue is so task driven that long duration tasks, if you look at uh, unimuscle um, or unijoint literature, um, a lot of the long duration, low intensity tasks cause a lot of centrally driven fatigue, while high intensity. Uh, exercise causes, uh, a lot more peripheral fatigue. So it's, um, there's some more caveats to that, but, um, yeah, so, but basketball is a combination of that. So, um, looking down the road, is it, um, the duration of practice that is going to play a bigger, bigger role in in driving more central fatigue and how can we, um, structure and use tactical periodization to optimize that? Or, um, how long does it take an athlete to recover from a high intensity peripheral, um, Um, about uh, high-intensity exercises that cause a a substantial amount of peripheral fatigue. How long does it take to recover from that? So we know what level of intensities we can hit leading into a game to make sure guys are optimal and have their full uh, physical potential um, leading into competition. Um, With that as well, uh, um, we give two stimulations uh, following the maximal contraction at rest, and these um, resting twitch allow us to stimulate the muscle at a high high frequency and a low frequency um, using a doublet and a single twitch. Uh, with that, we can start to illuminate if there's uh, low frequency fatigue or high frequency fatigue at uh, present. And it's thought in sport that uh, activities that have a lot of uh, eccentric loading um, and stretch-shortening cycle activity have a increase in low-frequency fatigue. Low-frequency fatigue is the disproportionate reduction in force at low-firing frequencies cont- uh, compared to high-firing frequencies. So uh, what that means is that the singlet would have a decrease in force, but the high-intensity or the high-frequency stimulation would stay um, at the same quantity of force. And this is important because we think low-frequency fatigue um, is, is insidious, long-lasting, will last over an extended period of time. Um, so we're starting to look at that over um, that pre- to post-practice and then at 24 hours um, to start to delve into um, how that musculature is responding. We can also take that single twitch and decipher um, specific in that force-time curve um, we can see without the brain's input, how does the peripheral muscle uh, contract? So um, how fast, what's the um, the rate of contraction, rate of force development in an isometric contraction? And then what's the uh, rate of force decline or half relaxation time um, in that stimulation? So uh, with that, we can start to see if there is uh, a decrease in rate of force development in that isolated twitch, then we know that um, there's probably uh, substrate accumulation that's um, inhibiting uh, actin myosin interaction but if there's a say there's a um, slow half relaxation time so the, the it goes it takes longer for the muscle to relax then there's probably uh, modifications in um, calcium ATPase and reuptake of that calcium to get the muscle to contract so these are all just peripheral mechanisms that we're starting to try to uh, kind of illuminate um, because it could affect um, one tactical periodization and how we lead trained guys in Uh, Prior to competition, as well as um, looking at different recovery modalities to, to mitigate some of those.
0: And all of this is tagged back into looking at what these outputs were at practice and what actual metrics you're taking off of the accelerometer and the GPS sensors.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And then also um, with all of those time points, I overlined it with the uh, the counter movement jump. So we can start to see, is there these laboratory-based measurements that we would usually use for t- fatigue? Are there uh, paralleling metrics that are de- at a deficit that we also see at a deficit on the force plate when we dissect that force time curve? So we can start to parallel those two. And then that's going to give us, a, I think, a better answer of saying, hey, I think these are the most essential parameters for people who can't do the t- which interpolation, you don't have time to do that technique, then you can say, hey, look, we should use these um, from our force parameter in the applied setting to um, look at at fatigue or see if our athletes are recovering from stimuli.
0: That's awesome, dude. So then I guess the next question that I would have for you is, this is all going to be extremely individually-based research and protocols. So where do you feel that this is then going to drive future questions and better abilities for practitioners to be able to is prescribe what i want to say or monitor or modify to make sure that these young people aren't going through the grind, you know, all the time that we love to call Yeah. It. Right or making sure they are going
1: through the grind as well because if you never get Touché. those deficits then it's like so that's one of the big pieces um, we are so focused on like and I, I've said it this whole time is like oh they're fatigued after practice right what if they're not right what if we have no changes maybe maybe practice is a potentiating experience and uh, an acute bout of it so um, stringing together uh multiple practices is really the next step. But I need to you need to break it down and see an individual response. And then we can start to stack those on uh, on top of each other. And um, understanding with these with these um, assessments and measurements, understanding how the athlete responds is going to be imperative and very applicable to many practitioners. Because uh, one of the things with external load monitoring right now, a lot of people <laughs> a lot of people collect external training load, right? They have catapult units. A lot of people just collect the data. Some people don't use it. Then you have the next people that collect it and do changes and try to structure practice with varying external training loads. There's not good evidence right now that um, there's a substantial difference that if I do 500 player load or 700 player load, if there's going to be a substantial difference in acute fatigue following that. So like the day before the game, is there a big, is there, is it a big deal if I, will there be uh, ramifications at 24 hours if I do uh, 500 more player load today? or even 200 player load there's there's one paper in rugby that kind of um illuminated that but we have a different game so um i think it's important to kind of go down that track but linking those two and then what are the key parameters from uh the catapult system that are or what are key uh, tasks that are going to be more fatiguing um or other key questions should we be using the ima data is it just the total quantity of work is it uh the quantity of jumps um um, that the athlete experienced. So there's a, a lot of questions, I think, from that build from that. Um, this is kind of just laying that um, foundational uh, framework so we can start to penetrate some of those questions.
0: Well, and even more so, is it is it that it's 500 or 700, or is it that it was 300 yesterday and 700 today? Or is it that 100%. the average is 600 and all of a sudden it's 900? Like, Where does this these one-offs, I think, are like, yep. you know, kind of, you know, I mean, we've all had the day where practice hasn't been great, and it's supposed to go for 75 minutes, and it goes for <clears throat> 75 minutes, you know? Like yeah. Probably 75 <laughs> minutes more. So what do those do? I think that that's an even more intriguing setup.
1: Absolutely. I think that's, um, that's definitely where we're going with it. Um, But without knowing um, the individual responses from acute event, then it's hard to stack days because the days get so convoluted. Um, So we're trying to break those down. um, And then we start to decipher through uh, more complex scenarios or even weekly training loads um, and how that looks over multiple weeks uh, with, with greater precision. If we um, understand this kind of acute time course of recovery.
0: No, I love it, man. Because then two. What would be even more exciting as that progresses, right, is not just understanding what that acute load to recovery time is, but how long is that acute load actually an acute load before it's just? But how long is it a developmental load before it's a stimulatory load, right? Like, for sure, eventually it it can't be the same.
1: Absolutely. It's very, very true. Um, I think that it even um, starting to parallel the different training phases as well of like, here's what is a, a developmental load or a stimulatory load in the offseason compared to in-season play compared to, um, I mean, competitive season phase one where you're in their non-conference or even postseason play. Have we built like a certain resilience by that time point um, that we can actually handle more or we can even handle Uh, more perturbations and load throughout different training phases. I think there um, a lot of our understanding of this is still um, relatively low compared to where it could be.
0: No doubt about it, brother. Well, listen, Aaron, let me get you out of here on this, man. You're already talking about papers you got published. Where can people find more? Where can they dig into this? Where can they keep track of, of how this is progressing? Because this is really some fascinating stuff.
1: Uh, so uh, a lot of the work's been in Journal of Strengthening and Conditioning research. I think that's a great article that gives uh, practically useful research um, to practitioners. There's also an open access uh, uh, journal called Sports MDPI. Um, and they'll do many uh, special issues on different different topics. Uh, I really like the journal because it's open access. And it's, uh, some practitioners may not have access to um, the, the library inventory or um, a variety of different uh, journals. So that open access, I, I love publishing open access journals because then anybody can read it um, and, and we can get more conversation uh, about the data um, to kind of improve future studies and improve uh, perspectives. Um, Also, the uh, International Journal of uh, Sports, IJSPP, International Journal of Sports, Performance and Physiology, another great journal um, in the journal of, uh, I was just reading this morning from the Journal of of the Frontier in Physiology. It's also another great journal. It'll have um, some um, training load, uh, training monitoring um, literature in there as well
0: awesome brother we'll make sure that we get your stuff put up there and it's in the show notes because this is great stuff man truly appreciate all your work and all you're doing to help us be better aaron and as always it's great catching up brother
1: thanks so much for having me I really enjoyed it
0: yeah man well we'll be in touch real soon brother cheers sounds great yeah man and a huge thanks to oklahoma's aaron heishman for spending the time of the state guys open honest candid sharing from a man doing the research and looking at it really you know turning these stones over to be able to look at fatigue. Is it central? Is it, is it peripheral? Is it high frequency? Is it low frequency? Is it going to be lasting or not? And, and being able to find different evaluations so we can all be better with what we do with our athletes. I can't thank Aaron enough for not just his open, honest, and candid sharing with us today, but for the work he's doing with his dissertation to help us all try to be better. So Aaron, thank you so much, brother. Keep up the great work. We really appreciate it. And as always, guys, if you did enjoy the talk, please share it through the social media outlet of your choice. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever it may be. As always, we are just trying to get the best information out there to all the great coaches that we can. And as always, guys, thank you for everything that you do for us here at Central Virginia Sport Performance. We will be back next week with another awesome guest. We will see you then.